probably should have given you all a little bit better heads up. Um, once a month or so, we're going to try to reach out to our missions partners and have them do the scripture reading. That's what Dwight Smith did for us today with Ephesians 2.10 and update us a little bit on what they're doing around the world. So that's what this morning was, and hopefully over the next several months, we'll hear from more and more of our partners who work around the world. One of them that we partner with as well is Tim Kazee. Some of you will remember a few years ago, he came to be with us. He leads Frontline Missions International, a missions agency that supports missionaries taking the gospel to some of the harder places around the world. He's written a couple of books. I absolutely love his writings. And in fact, his third book has just come out. It's called A Day's Journey, Stories of Hope and Death-Defying Joy. A few years ago, Tim was diagnosed with cancer, and he is fighting a very, very good fight. And this book, if I can say anything, and in fact, it's, it's, it's the one and only book I was asked to write an endorsement for, so that's kind of neat. I got it in there. Um, most books, this book as well, teaches us in many ways how to live seems to me only a few really teach us maybe how to die. And all of us, should the Lord Jesus come, are going to cross that river. And this one certainly teaches us how to live. But in many ways, it's, I think it's helpful for us as we think about when we will go to meet the Lord ourselves. One of the things he does in the book is he goes to spend days with a number of different people, and one of those was Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you are familiar with her story. She was a tenured college professor, radical feminist, leader in the LGBTQ community, committed lesbian. And yet, by God's good providence, a wonderful, Christ-loving, people-loving couple began to have her into their home and love on her and share the love of Christ with her. And she came to faith. She got saved. She herself married a man who would become a pastor. She opens her home. They open their home seemingly like no other. She wrote a book herself called the Gospel Comes with a House Key, a book about hospitality, opening up your home to friends and neighbors and the like. She's a loving lady, valiant for the truth, and Tim spent a day with her. And one of the things he notes in the chapter about his visit was this, that he saw her prayer journal. He said, I was most interested to see Rosaria's prayer journal a simple spiral-bound tablet with headings such as family, neighbors, nation, church family, prisoners, urgent, each with a list of names she prays through every day. Highlighter and penciled updates mark the progress of her prayer work done over these worn pages. The first page of her prayer journal and the first to be prayed for each morning was under the heading, Prayer for My Enemies page is full of names. 
can imagine why somebody like Rosaria Butterfield might have lots of enemies. Coming from where she came from, who she is now, she has probably made a long list of enemies. Those who really don't like her, wish her harm, and maybe even seek her harm. You and I probably don't have a list like hers. If we've got a list of enemies, it's probably a lot shorter than hers. But I think it is pressing upon us, how do we respond to our enemies? Or if we don't go so far to think about them as enemies, how do we respond to others that live lives that rub us the wrong way for one reason or another? How do we respond towards those who are different from us? Maybe they talk different or dress different. Maybe they have different values than we do. Maybe they have a completely different set of beliefs. Maybe they vote different than we do. Maybe they love different than we do. How do we respond to them? Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We're studying some of Jesus' parables. This one of the more famous ones. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 down to 37. A lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Maybe the first thing we're meant to take from this story is let's not limit the scope of our responsibility. Don't limit the scope of our responsibility to love. 
seems to me this is kind of a Q&A back and forth between the lawyer and Jesus. He, he has question number one here. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Luke tells us that he was putting Jesus to the test. Not exactly sure how pure his motives were. He, he seemingly wants to maybe trap Jesus some have thought maybe the lawyer was anxious about the seemingly unorthodox actions and teachings of Jesus. Jesus was different than this guy was used to. Jesus associated with outcasts and with sinners. He healed on the Sabbath. He, he seemed to be unconcerned about touching the unclean and eating with unclean hands. Where, where did Jesus stand in relationship to the law of God? Maybe the lawyer's wondering, how does Jesus understand the law? Does it or does it not determine who is righteous and who is going to inherit eternal life in the end? He seems to have a good question in mind here. What, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? When God brings the ages to an end and vindicates the righteous people, and establishes his forever kingdom. What must I do to, to ensure that, that I will be there? Maybe Jesus knows that he's trying to put him to the test or trap him. And so Jesus answers his question with a quest question. Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? What's your understanding of the matter? So he answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Putting together those two great commands to love God and love others. To love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus answers him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus affirms his answer. I don't think that he's affirming anything like works righteousness. It could be, it could be that, that Jesus is trying to press this man into understanding, live perfectly, and you'll be fine. How does it read to you? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus could be saying, yep, do that, and you'll live. Keep those two commandments perfectly, and you will inherit eternal life. And, and, and many think that Jesus is pushing him and pushing all of us into that realization that there's no way that I can keep it. I need a Savior. Could well be that. Or Jesus may be speaking sincerely here. Not affirming any sort of works righteousness. But though Jesus doesn't answer maybe exactly how we would want him to answer, he doesn't go into exactly how Paul might answer the question with, with Romans and Galatians and the like, that Jesus is affirming exactly what indeed faith really is is 
if someone loves the Lord God, they love the Father who sent the Son into the world to be their Savior and to give His Spirit that they might live a life of love. So Jesus is saying to this man, if indeed you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, who, who is this God? Luke has just told us in chapter 10, he's, he's the Father who has sent the Son. If you will look to Him and love Him, you will indeed trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and the Spirit of God will come into you, and you will live a life of love. Not perfect, but truly. But this prompts another question. But wishing to justify himself, maybe this man realizes, boy, I'm not measuring up. But if I can just redefine what a neighbor is, maybe I'll be all right. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? He's trying to limit the scope of his responsibility. If I can just define neighbor in such a way that it says I can love this person, but I don't have to love that person, then, then maybe I'm well on my way. And Jesus answers this question, who is my neighbor, with the famous parable. You know the story, maybe, maybe you don't, though, and so let's briefly make a few notes about it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem sat at about 2,700 feet above sea level. Jericho sat about 800 feet below sea level. It's 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. The terrain is barren and it is rough. Almost no vegetation. It's quite hilly. It's got some winding roads to it and all the authors say it has numerous hiding places for bandits. It is a notoriously treacherous road. That's the road this man is traveling. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I wondered how might we say it today. I don't know. This man was walking through downtown Houston at night in a bad place at a bad time. And he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. I thought about that this week. You know, cameras are everywhere now, right? In every store, outside every building, um, in everybody's pocket. If something happens, there's a good chance we're going to see it. And sadly, so oftentimes these kinds of incidents have been captured and we see them and they're just horrific. Somebody at the wrong place at the wrong time and they are jumped and they are beaten and they are stripped and they are left for dead. It's sad. 
but how fortunate he is that a priest is right around the corner. The priest is the godly man. This is God's servant. This is one who ministers in the temple. He represents the height of piety within the nation. And it's by chance how fortunate a priest was going down on that road, but sadly, he saw him and passed by on the other side. So disappointing because this is an unquestioned religious leader within the nation who certainly would be marked by love for God and love for others, and yet he sees but passes by. But maybe that's okay because a Levite is coming soon. Levite, if you will, is not quite a priest. The priest was from the was was of the lineage of Aaron. A Levite was of the tribe of Levi, but he wasn't a descendant of Aaron, and and so he he couldn't be a priest. But they were somewhat like assistants to the priest. They ministered in the temple as well. They were spread throughout the land to teach the word of God among the people. They were considered exemplary as well. And yet, this Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the priest, no, the Levite, no. And maybe the, the Jewish audience would think, what's, oh, excuse me, what's coming next in the story is the Jewish layperson. And they're going to be the hero. Right? This, this is a story that's taking a look at the religious leaders within Israel and how horrible they are, but the Jewish layperson, that's going to be the hero in the story, but that's not when Jesus goes. Could have been an elder who passed by, a, a, a deacon who passed by, but, but the kid's Sunday school teacher stopped and showed compassion. That's not it. But a Samaritan. If you're not familiar too much with the New Testament, the Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. 700 years B.C., the Assyrians came in and defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and took thousands of them away into exile, left some of them in the land, and some of those Assyrians came to live in the land of Israel and intermarried with those Jewish people, and those children became what were known as the Samaritans. They were half Assyrian, half Jew. They were half-breeds. And there was great animosity between the Jewish people and those half-breed Samaritan people. 700 years worth of it in the time of Jesus. I could show you earlier in the book when, when two of Jesus' disciples ask him, do you want us to call down fire upon the Samaritans? I mean, they were ready for the judgment of God to come upon the Samaritan people. They did not like them. I can show you in the book of Acts. Whenever the persecution started in Jerusalem and people started to leave Jerusalem and take the gospel with them, a guy named Philip went to Samaria, 
preached the gospel to the Samaritans, and the leadership in Jerusalem said, what in the world is going on? Peter, John, go check it out. Because the idea that the Samaritans were coming to faith in Jesus, I, I tried to think, what, what would we put in the deal here? The elder passed by, the, the deacon passed by, but what do, you, what do you stick in there? The one maybe in your heart and in your mind, you, you tend to, I don't like them. They don't share my values. They don't share my beliefs. maybe these days, but a member of Hamas who was on a journey. Take Rosaria, but, but, a, but an LBGTQ affirming pastor was on a journey. But a, but a, but a, who do you put in there to make it sting as much for you as it probably did for these folks. Those you're inclined to think little of, those you're inclined not to like, those you might put on your enemies list, those you love to read about them getting their due, what do you put in there? Well, that's the one, Jesus said, who came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. There's the difference. The word is used earlier in the Gospel of Luke when a woman had lost her son and she was weeping and Jesus saw her and felt and we saw it last week, whenever the son had taken his inheritance and gone off to live his profligate lifestyle, and then he came back and the father saw him and felt compassion. This Samaritan, unlike the priest and unlike the Levite, feels compassion for this one in need. And that led him to do a whole bunch of things. Came to him, bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him. On the next day, he took two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. I've read two to four weeks that that two denarii would have given for this man to stay in the inn and be cared for and regain his strength. And Jesus asks another question. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? And of course, he answered the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. 
Redeemer, those of us who follow Jesus, go and do the same. Jesus seems to, and I think this is one thing that you and I need to maybe do, is flip the question. Flip the question from, who is my neighbor, to, am I being a good neighbor? Right? The, the, the question from the man was, well, who's my neighbor? He wants to define neighbor as an object out there. Define for me, Jesus, who my neighbor is so I can know that I need to love this one, but I don't have to love that one. I need to love her, but not her. Who's my neighbor? Puts it out there as an object to be defined so I can limit my scope of responsibility as to whether or not I need to love them. And Jesus, in the story, kind of flips it. He doesn't answer the question, really, who's my neighbor? He, he, he tells a story that answers, asks the question, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? And of course, it's the one who shows mercy. One called it the great switch. On the one hand is neighbor as object, someone external to me that needs to be defined so I can determine whether or not I'm bound to love them versus neighbor as subject, where I, I'm the subject, I'm the one doing the being a neighbor, someone who is me, who needs to be concerned with meeting needs I can meet right in front of me. So again, the question is not, who is my neighbor? Is he my neighbor? Is he my neighbor? Is she my neighbor? Is she my neighbor? The question is, am I being? neighbor. There are no boundaries to the definition of a neighbor. Who is my neighbor shouldn't be asked. No thought should be given to the idea that a human could ever be a non-neighbor. Again, the better question is what sort of neighbor ought I to be? One said, one cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. Sorin Kierkegaard said, to love one's neighbor means to will to exist equally for every human being without exception. Even those I might be inclined not to. That's one practical thing for you and I to do, is not try to limit the scope of our love in any way, but to rather ask a question, am I being a neighbor to those God brings into my life? Maybe another thing that you and I can do is pray for compassion. Again, this is what sets the Samaritan off from the priest and the Levite. He's the one who felt compassion. We talked about it before. It, it, it seems to be a word that, that describes the moving of the bowels. 
you feel for the person. And when I think about that, I think, oh, I'm, I'm done. Because I don't feel like so many of you feel sometimes. Some of you have the gift of mercy, and so when you hear of someone in need, you see someone in need, you feel for them. I'm not so sure I have the gift of mercy, and none of you all are surprised by that. But that doesn't exempt me from needing it wanting it and praying for it that God you would give me compassion for those in my life who may be in need that I can help and then obviously maybe we could be generous with our time, with our talent and with our treasure, this man certainly was quick little story Y'all know Molly's story this year, cancer and all that good stuff, and she's doing great, praise the Lord. And she just started ninth grade, and she's in FFA, and she loves it, and we love it for her, and Molly wants to raise a goat with FFA. And we thought, oh, man, we don't want to drive to the FFA barn every morning and every evening for the next several months. Can we keep this goat at home? And you can you can keep the goat at home. We didn't do our due diligence on the front end, so we, we set up the pen in our backyard, and we put Willie Nelson the goat. That's what Molly named him, Willie Nelson. And Willie Nelson in our backyard, kind of on our back porch, up underneath the deal. It was great. Until one of our neighbors on the backside that we've never met, doesn't know how wonderful we are, complained to the city. Too much noise. And Willie is not that loud. He's really not. And at nighttime, he doesn't make a peep. But when he would see us, and then, I didn't know this, but goats, they can make a, a, a loud, obnoxious sound. But Willie would do it just for like a minute, and that was it. But we got a call. can't have the goat in the backyard. Oh, man. Who turned us in? Enemies. Not going to love them. Praise God, we have some other neighbors in our cul-de-sac who said, Willie can live at our place. And as long as, you have, here's the deal, as long as all neighbors within 100 feet of Willie say it's okay, you can get a permit from the city and you're good to go. So we have some other neighbors who said, Willie can live in our backyard, and all those neighbors had already said, yeah, Willie's great. So Willie lives across the street now. <laughs> Sometimes you can hear him all the way at our house. I don't like my neighbor on the back. Sometimes I've driven by wishing I'd find her, she lives by herself, outside, so I could stop and give her a piece of my mind. But praise God, she hasn't been out there, and my bark is off. 
thankfully a whole lot more vicious than my bike. We got some other neighbors. They don't they don't live in the house, but they don't want to sell the house, and the yard goes. Who is my neighbor, Lord? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Sure. Oh, really? Do I have to? I'd rather define my neighbor according to my liking. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. The question isn't, Mitch, who is your neighbor? so that you can define who you're going to love and who you're not. The question is, are you being a neighbor? Let me close with this. Don't let your questions keep you from action. The parable calls us to compassionate action, but doesn't answer all of our questions or address every circumstance. How does this work out in every instance? What does it look like in this circumstance or that one? I'm not sure. And I'm certainly not going to be the one to tell you. I want to quote to you this fellow named Snodgrass. I forget his first name. He wrote a book on the parables. He wrote this. Yet is the thinking of this parable realistic at all? Sigmund Freud argues that loving our neighbors as ourselves is neither desirable nor possible. Is this parable idealistic, contrary to common sense, and destined to exhaust us and our resources? The problem is that we want every parable to do the whole of theology, when instead they are intended to make us think and act. Parables are compelling vignettes, sometimes even exaggerations to make a point, not whole theologies. This is not the only text, and its issues are not the only ones involved in deciding how assistance is to be given. Other questions exist or are spawned by the parable. What is the risk in helping? Any attempt to love is a risk. What action would the Samaritan have taken had he come while the robbery and beating were in process? Are there any limits? David Flusser, a Jewish New Testament scholar, asserted that, quote, Christianity surpasses Judaism, at least theoretically, in its approach of love to all men. But its only genuine answer to the powerful, wicked forces of this world is, as it seems, martyrdom. Is martyrdom the only result? Knowing how to implement this parable is, much harder, is a much harder task than we realize, and it certainly is not about moralism. Neither it nor any other section of the New Testament gives any indication of how, love of, of how to love neighbor as self or what the limits are, if any, before martyrdom. The New Testament is more an identity book than a guidebook. It tells what Christian character is, not what actions must be done in each case. Disciples of Jesus 
are those who refuse boundaries for the identification of neighbor and instead love even their enemies. Say that again. Disciples of Jesus are those who refuse boundaries for identification of neighbor and instead love even their enemies. With that identity in place, each person must determine what path of wisdom best expresses that identity. This parable may not tell us how to love our neighbor as ourselves, but it creates a reality that challenges our passivity and self-interest. Loving the neighbor as oneself is difficult, but no alternative is allowed for the followers of Jesus. He goes on, we cannot leave this parable without making explicit that it confronts the sin of racism. Christians are as guilty as any of allowing illegitimate boundaries to exist. We must not be quiet about or tolerant of the sin of racism whether in the United States or Western Europe or that which exists between Palestinians and Israelis. To be silent is to give permission. On the basis of this parable, we must deal with our own racism, but must also seek justice for and offer assistance to those in need, regardless of the group to which they belong. Tim Kazee talked more about his day with Rosaria and her husband and all the people who had come into their home that day, and then he closes the chapter, gets close to it with this. Afterwards, Rosaria and I took another walk with Sully and Bella. Those were the two dogs. The streets were quiet and the shadows lengthening. It was a good time to talk. One of the things that had been on my mind all day to ask her about was the first and full page of her prayer list that I saw under the heading, Prayer for My Enemies. It's not a blacklist of those who crossed her the wrong way, but rather a prayer list for those who have made themselves the enemy of Christ and made her family the target of their hate. I asked, Rosaria, I asked what Rosaria prays for her enemies. She said she prays for conversion, for the opportunity to do them good, and that she will be careful not to sin against them. Redeemer, let's not worry about who is my neighbor, but rather, am I being a good neighbor? Even to those in my sinfulness, I may be inclined not to. Let's pray. Father, what an identity you have given to us. Those who are loved by God through Jesus Christ and indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit to love. Paul wrote that the goal of our instruction is love. And the Spirit of God within each of our hearts produces fruit in our lives, the first of which, Paul said, is 
love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Father, we don't know how all the details work themselves out in any and every circumstance. But would you help us to be men and women, young and old, inclined toward love. Help us to be compassionate towards those in our life who are in need. And help us give ourselves generously time, talent, treasures to demonstrate that love and help when we can. And we're so grateful that to turn this story a bit on at another angle that in our sin, we were in desperate need. Because of our sin, we were separated from you and left for dead. But Jesus came along, sent by you. He felt compassion for us. He loved us. And he paid for everything to make us whole again. Thank you for him who lived for us, died for us, rose for us, and right now reigns for us and prays for us and leads us and watches over us and keeps us. What a Savior. We love him and we pray in his name.